Good morning, church. Uh, if you haven't noticed, um, actually, I was signed up to preach today. Stephen's generously uh, agreed to preach with me. Um, it's so the, It's the job of the older brother to always be like, hey, I have this idea. And then the younger brother is always the one that's like, oh, that's a good idea. I don't know why I always go with these things. Our parents keep trying to convince him you should stop doing it, but here he is anyway. So. <laughs> 2020 has been a pretty crazy year, guys, right? Um, a lot of people, to some extent, saying, boy, I wish it was over already. And if you haven't asked that question, this asked question before in your life, which is, what makes the world such a mess? Before 2020, you probably have asked yourself that question, or someone has, but this year, if you haven't it before, you probably are. So the question I, w- I want to ask you guys is, what makes the world such a mess? And I'm asking for answers, actually, yes. And that's not rhetorical. Sin. Sin, absolutely. Yes. And? What? People. People. Yes, right? Sure. Anything else? Mm-hmm. I'll give you a hint. It's in Genesis 3. Yes, thank you. That is correct, right? Which is, people aren't the only thing that starts this, right? There's somebody else there with them when all of this starts. This character, the snake, develops Satan as it goes along, right, initially. So we not only are facing sin, but we're also facing supernatural evil. And so when we look at the world around us, we recognize that what makes the world a mess is sin and supernatural evil. Right? Okay? With me? Stephen? So, like... I think we know this and we understand this and we realize like the reality that there's something underneath the surface behind all of this that animates um, much more than just, um, just humans, that there's something actually at, at play in this world. And we realize that because like not only have we read the Bible, we can see with our eyes what actually takes place. Um, if you look in, in Ephesians six twelve, it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So we, we know that, right? Like, we realize there's something greater, there's something more, there's something beyond just this flesh and blood um, battle that we see with our eyes. Um, and it says, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so we're just like, okay, yeah. I realize that, like, I realize there's something a lot more, and it's something that we often don't talk a lot about, because it's like, well, that's crazy stuff, I don't really know, and that's dark and deep and scary, Um, but we realize it, right? Like, we know this. I mean, think back to Daniel 10. Daniel is praying. He's prayed that that there would be, uh, that that God would send somebody to him, and as he prays, somebody, a spiritual being, is released to come to him. And it takes 21 days, and he comes to him and he goes, hey, I was sent right away. Sorry, I got delayed. The prince of Persia, and I got into this little scuffle, and I actually had to have Michael come, another spiritual being, come to help me. So I'm here, but I had to do some like spiritual warfare. There's something beyond the surface, something underneath all of this um, that's actually at play. And so it's like, oh, wow. Okay, so there's actually a prince over this region of Persia. And then this same spiritual being is like, by the way, when I leave, not only have to go back to the prince of Persia, there's also the prince of Greece that I have to take on too. Good thing Michael's around. He's one that I can count on. He's fantastic. And so it's like, wow, all right. So go read Daniel 10, and you can uh, see that I very much just summarized that. Um, You you can get all the other details on that later. so it's like, okay, yeah, we realize Paul's tracking with something. He understands there's some, some, some sort of deep darkness below the surface. We see that um, Daniel's like, wow, there is some sort of enemy that's actually taking place in the spiritual realm. And it's like, where did all this begin? Where did all this start? What's actually going on here? So we actually have to go back to, oh, isn't, have you guys not already flipped to Genesis? That you knew I was talking. You knew that was where I'd end up anyway, right? You guys are already there, probably, right? Everybody's in Genesis, right? So flip to Genesis 3. And we'll look at some stuff here. So, beginning of Genesis 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So let's go back. 
Because that's an interesting question. So it's like, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So we go back to uh, chapter 2, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad you shall not eat. For in that day you eat, you will surely die. So we realize already that there is some, something going on. That there is this creature that is, that is uh, craftier than any of the beasts of the field. And he's actually going, hey, so remember God said something, right? He said something about not eating of any of the trees, right? You can't eat of any of them, right? Is that correct? And, and Eve's like, uh, well, no, not exactly. And then, you know the story. She partakes of it. She's fooled. She is swindled into giving up, basically, her birthright. The things that was actually said to be hers, she has given up. And we realize as we continue on in the story, we're like, oh, this was a spiritual being. This was actually somebody that actually, it wasn't just a serpent, like a snake that we see. It was actually something of, of spiritual evil, of spiritual darkness that is actually taking place in this story. And we were like, oh, okay, something is actually going on here. But... What the punishment is that they get, that Adam and Eve get, uh, it says in uh, Genesis 3.18, it says, uh, and this is God speaking to Adam, and it says, uh, you shall eat the plants of the field, which is interesting. And this is something that when you read the Bible, you should be paying attention to these kind of details. So it says, you shall eat the, the plants of the field. And so you go back and you're like, wait a minute, was, didn't God say something in Genesis 1 about what humans should eat and what the beasts of the field should eat? Isn't there something there in Genesis 1? So we go back to Genesis 1 and we go to uh, verse 29 and it says, And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed. This is him talking to the humans saying, This is what you can eat. So I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, and everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And that's what God says. So he says, humans, you guys get to eat of all this great fruit. Anything that has seed in it, that's yours. Beasts of the field, you guys eat all the green vegetation. So we flip back to Genesis 3, and it says, and you shall eat all the plants of the field. He's, gonna, he's saying, if you want to act like that beast, if you want to act like the crafty one, if you want to act like that, be like that. You can eat just like them. You can actually demote yourself. You've demoted yourself from, from the ones who are supposed to rule and reign. You're, you've demoted yourselves from the ones who are actually supposed to live and actually enact the will of God into creation, and you've actually chosen to live like one of the spiritual beings in rebellion not the ones who are actually living in the right way. Do we understand that? Like that that is what is actually at play in all this. So we know that the next thing is that uh, that God actually says to the serpent, uh, he says, uh, in verse 15, and I put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So we actually know then that there's going to be some sort of offspring, right, from the serpent and some sort of offspring from the woman. And so there's this expectation that we're actually going to see uh, people that are going to actually continue to walk just like the beast, just like the serpent, and, and actually continue to actually outwork disorder, actually outwork chaos, actually outwork darkness and spiritual evil. And we see that throughout the entire Bible, Right? Like, we realize that there is something of the seed of the serpent, of this darkness that actually continues a thread all the way through. And we realize, wait, there's something else, though, that the enemy between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So we should expect that there's going to be something of the seed of the woman that is actually going to be true. That, it, she, that there's something in her line that's actually going to allow uh, righteousness, peace, and joy. There's going to be actually something of, this is the way humans were designed to be. And this is what I expect to see mm-hmm. in humanity, that they will actually walk out the reality of what humanity was designed to live like. And we realize that, like, we see that, we understand that. Um, and we actually begin to see 
that all of this language here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 actually shapes. It's the seeds that get planted for the rest of Scripture. So the words that we see of beast, the words that we see of all of these different things, the seed, the serpent, um, the, the one who actually crushes the head of the serpent, all of these words are actually things that are, are planted and actually grow and develop and develop and develop throughout the rest of the Scriptures. So what we actually get in these first three pages, first the whole book of Genesis, um, is, is the seedbed that actually grows into something. So when we actually get to later on in the book and we actually see Egypt and we see Babylon and we see Rome and we see the United States and we see all of these different things, uh, whether it's in the Bible or just realize that, that there's, uh, what the reality is behind all of these things is spiritual evil. That's why, like, that's why uh, Daniel sees visions of these, of these monsters. There's uh, these beasts. That's why in Revelation there's these beasts. And it's, it's the spiritual darkness behind all of this. When the unification of spiritual darkness comes together in a society, it's a monster. It's a beast. And that's what the Bible is actually talking about. The Egypt is a beast. Babylon is a beast. And that is what like, we understand. And Jesus even says it uh, when he's like, you know, uh, this is your hour, the, spirit of dar- or the, the, the hour of darkness. And not just yours, it's the spiritual realm's hour. Like he sees that there's a, a dual thing at play here. Not just yours, the Pharisees, not just you, the scribes, not just you, the Sadducees, the leaders of the law. But he actually says, but also, basically, the spiritual darkness, they are at play behind all of this. We see that? Do we understand that that's the reality of the, that Jesus and the Bible is actually talking about? Do you guys understand that? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so you might think at this point, David and Stephen forgot we're supposed to be preaching on Matthew 16. We haven't. Promise. <laughs> um, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into Matthew 16 in, in light of this. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to come together to dive in with each other, and to learn about what you want to teach us, and how you want us to grow, and how you want us to live more faithfully, more truly as a human. In your name, amen. So last time I preached, I talked about the idea of noticing how the Bible does these things where it tells you stories in such a way that the outside portion works progressively in to a center. Remember that? Generally, there was this idea, stories move inwards to a center, and that center then inspires the outside and how you should think about it. So if you go to Matthew 16, I'm not going to do that for you, but I will tell you what the center is and why it's important. So in Matthew 16, verse 21 is the one that really sticks out here. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. So That's the center. Here's the interesting thing. If you go and you compare Mark 10 and Luke 9, both those have very similar things. Jesus basically setting his face towards Jerusalem, letting people know he's going to go and die. The interesting thing is, is in both those cases, that statement is made after the transfiguration. The transfiguration doesn't happen until, spoiler, next chapter in Luke, or in Matthew, okay? So Matthew 17 We get it, but in Luke, the same statement is made afterwards, okay? So when we read that and notice that there's differences in how the Gospels are communicating, we need to stop and say, what is different and why is that important? Does that make sense to you guys? So instead of reading them, I, I find myself, I read it and I just go, it's just one sort of like massive conglomeration. That's true, and also there's distinct, distinct things we're trying to communicate. Remember, we're teaching Matthew right now as the, where Matthew is showing that Jesus is the faithful Israelite. So if we then ask ourselves, what just came before? That's the thing that really helps us to understand where we are. And that is, Jesus has just gone to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he starts talking about the fact that he is going to build his church, right? And so he's saying in this portion, he says... Um, Blessed are you, Simon by Barjona, for flesh and blood has revealed to you this, but my Father is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, you've probably heard plenty of sermons, or at least some, talking about the fact that this statement, Peter, is a rock, and that Jesus is talking about building on this rock. 
No arguments. There are at least three levels to this understanding. We're going to focus on one of them that normally isn't talked about. The second one, tell me, do you remember earlier in Matthew what rock was being built on? Do you remember this? There was a, there was a statement about building your house on a rock, remember? Who's the rock? Christ, right? And so we know that, right? Which is the church is built on God and on Christ. And if you go back to the Old Testament and remind yourself of this, right? The rock is that firm foundation, that place that we anchor ourselves. So there's definitely a level that we should be thought about with this understanding. Who's the rock, right? And so we understand that. But we're going to focus on the third level today. And so that one we're going to have to tease out a little bit because it's not, a, it's not one that just jumps out at you. Um, but I will, I will continue to sort of anchor ourselves in. If you haven't picked up at this point, there's something about supernatural beings that we need to be anchoring ourselves in here, okay? Um, and so Jesus says at this point, right, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, if you go look for the Greek words that are keys, bound, and loosed, and look for where those are used throughout the rest of the New Testament, you'll discover the fact that it's always in context for supernatural beings. If you hadn't picked up on this. Okay, so like Luke 13, um, Jesus heals a woman who's been struggling with some sort of um, deformity in the way she, like, she can't stand up fully. And so... The, the, it said, it's a statement about like a, a, a spirit that has been oppressing her. And so Jesus responds, and, um, because the Pharisees are complaining, oh, you did this on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus responds, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond, bond on the Sabbath day? If you go to Revelation 9, 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release, or loose is the Greek word, for both of those, release the four angels who are bound at the great rivers Euphrates, Revelation 9, 14. And then Revelation 20, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So, Already, we should be anchoring ourselves in, again, if you hadn't picked this up, that there is something about supernatural beings that is going on in this section, and we want to key ourselves in, tune ourselves into how does what is being said about building on the rock matter, and why should that be significant to our lives? So, with that being said, Stephen... So in this section that David was just referencing, it says, Now, uh, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, this is uh, 1613, um, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Um, So that word, or those words, Son of Man, actually have uh, a history. So Jesus doesn't just come on the scene and start going, Hey, I'm the Son of Man. Like, there's something else beyond this in in the Old Testament uh, that, that we should actually be keying into. Like I said earlier, like the, remember the seeds that were planted in Genesis and actually grow into something? This is one of them that was planted way back when uh, and has grown into this great uh, developed uh, tree, uh, per se. Uh, so, so the Son of Man is this term that, um, if we're going to look at it, uh, let me ask you a question. Which, what book of the Bible uses the, the phrase Son of Man more than any other book? And it's not even close. It's like ridiculously off the charts compared to any other book. What? Boom. Yep. Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great job. So, yeah, so Ezekiel is like ridiculous just how many times God calls Ezekiel son of man, son of man, son of man, son of man. Uh, and so there's something in that book uh, that we should be keying into and realizing, hey, there, we should understand something of the son of man. Uh, just, just real quick to make the comment, though, in the same story when it told in the other Gospels, um, we get the question is, who do people say that I am? And only in Matthew does it say, who is the Son of Man? So again, we should be asking ourselves, what is it about the way this is being told? What are the, way, way the wording is Matthew trying to drive home for us? 
Yes, exactly. And so like, that's, that's what, like, we need to understand this phrase so that we can understand what is Matthew really getting at? What is Matthew trying to show? What is he actually trying to like, tease out in all of this? Um, so again, let's go back to Genesis 3. And, and what do we remember uh, that, that it says, from the seed of the woman, there will come one who will do what to the serpent? crush his head and he will bruise his heel, right? Like the serpent will bruise his heel. And so there's something that we realize from that, uh, from that word from God that that's a promise that one day, one who is a son of a human, and that's the phrase son of man, it just means son of a human, and it actually takes on a lot more over time, and we get to realize, oh, that, like that phrase doesn't just mean son of a human, it, it, it's a portrait that actually develops and it has like art added to it, basically. Um, it's a painting that we keep getting more and more details on as the story continues. Um, and so we realize we're looking for one who will be that serpent crusher, somebody who's actually going to come and actually destroy spiritual evil. And so you, so you take uh, Genesis 3, you have them, uh, they give in to this spiritual evil, and so then you're like, oh, no, but we know that there's going to be one come of the seed of the woman. So next chapter, chapter 4, you not have one seed, you have two seeds. You have Cain and you have Abel. So it's like, this is going to be it. One of them is going to be the one who conquers the serpent, but then you keep reading and you get less excited about the way that one went. <laughs> that did not go quite as well as we actually thought it was going to when we first were like, sweet, two people, we got two choices, one of them's going to do it for sure, it's going to be easy. Uh, but, but the interesting thing that I find is, is that it actually says that, that, God actually says to Cain, hey, sin is crouching like a beast of the field is crouching. Sin is crouching at your door waiting to overtake you, but you can say no. You get the choice. Do you want to be the seed of the woman and say no and walk in righteousness? Or will you be the seed of the serpent? Will you be like the beast of the field? Will you continue to walk in that way? What's your choice? We know his choice. So then so then we, we get excited when, when Noah comes on the scene. We're like, he might be the one. No, he wasn't. Abraham, no. Moses, himself felt good for a little while. Uh, David, again, felt good for a little while. Didn't work out so well. Uh, and, and you keep looking and you keep hoping that one of these guys, one of these individuals is going to be that one who's going to be that serpent crusher, who's actually going to come and actually do this, who's actually going to win, who's actually going to take down spiritual evil and actually put an end, right? We're, we're waiting for that day to actually take place. Uh, and so each one of these individuals actually adds to that portrait. So what we see um, is, is we need someone who's a deliverer like Moses. You know, we need someone who actually is going to bring the blessing of God to the nations like an Abraham. We need someone who's actually going to rule and reign like a king like David. Like we need all of these different, like each one of these adds a portrait to what the Son of Man is actually doing. And so you get all the way to Ezekiel, and by this time, when you start seeing that God starts calling him Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man, in this point in the story, we should already be paying attention. We should be king in, realizing, like, we've been reading our Bible. We, we have been waiting. We know the prophecy in chapter three, in the third page of the book. We should be remembering that every time we read the Old Testament. Where is this one? Where is this one? I'm waiting for the one who's going to crush the head. Is this the one? No, not this one. Is this the one? No, not this one. Is this the one? But as I keep reading, I'm like, well, this might not have been the one, but I do know we need one who's going to be a deliverer like this one. And I do know I need, we're going to need one who's going to be a king like this one. And I do know that we need one who's going to actually bring the blessing of God to all the nations like this one. And so we're like, okay, it's not this one, it's not this one. And we get to Ezekiel and God's like, hey, son of man. And we're like, son of man, son of a human, son of one who's from the seed of the woman. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one that is actually going to do this. And, you know, I mean, Babylon is, comes in and takes the Israelites out. And in Jeremiah 51, it actually says that Nebuchadnezzar swallows Israel like a monster. And so it's like, okay, maybe Ezekiel is the one. Like, the fact that, that the Bible actually says that Nebuchadnezzar came in and swallowed him like a monster, I'm like, yeah, I need somebody who's going to take down the monster, someone who's actually going to take down the beast, someone who's actually going to crush the head of the serpent. And so we look and we're like, is, is, is Ezekiel the one? And he's not, but he actually begins to, to do some stuff. He actually begins to uh, live out the picture of, of uh, more, add to that portrait of what this son of man will actually be like. Uh, he, he ends up making a clay model of Jerusalem, and so he actually isn't just telling uh, what's going to happen. He's telling 
Ezekiel is actually prophesying in all of these things of what happened, what is happening, and what one day will happen. And so when Ezekiel makes this model of Jerusalem and he destroys it and he lays on his side um, for over a year and he chops his hair off and chops it up in all these little tiny pieces and, and eats uh, food that's cooked over poop and all of these different things, they're all prophesying. They're all like speaking into the reality of what's going to actually take place one day, that his preaching is to create a remnant community, Some, a, a community that, that, that is holy uh, to the Lord and, and is, uh, is a righteous uh, people to the nations. Uh, and, and he wants these people to not look back to the old covenant and be like, well, I remember the old days of how great this used to be. Or look back to old Jerusalem and be like, what, you know, I can't wait for the old way. But he's like, no, like, I want you to see the future, like, dead bones coming to life. I want you to see the reality of living waters coming out of the temple of God and actually flowing into creation, actually bringing life back into I want you guys to not focus on the bad thing, uh, the, the great things of the past. I want you to realize that there's a promise of a future. That's what I want you to focus on. I want you to remember that the God who has done great things, will do great things, is doing great things, despite what it looks like, despite how I feel, I have to anchor myself in the truth and the reality of his word, right? Mm. And so we realize that, and we realize that that is actually what, what Ezekiel is doing. He's going, I want you guys to realize, it doesn't matter what it looks like, you guys are in slavery and bondage right now in Babylon. Look forward. Look to the reality. Look to the coming king. Look to the one who is truly going to be the son of man. And we see that actually um, in Isaiah 59, 16 through 17. Um, the Lord is actually looking. He's looking for one who will, who will take on that role of son of man. And it says, he, the Lord, saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in, in a zeal as a cloak. So God actually is like, I need somebody to do this, to take on this role, to actually walk in my ways, who actually goes, you know what? I desire your will above my will. I will actually walk in what you have said more than what I want to do. I will actually walk in your way in righteousness, despite what my eyes see and despite the things that are tempting and look desirable to me, I will actually walk and choose your way every time. And he looks, God looks, and he's like, there is none. Who's going to have to do it? I'm going to have to do it. I'm the only one who's been a faithful covenant keeper. Like how ridiculous that none of us have actually been able to keep the covenant. Like that he actually has to be the one who keeps both sides of the covenant for us to actually enter in. And he looks and he's like, I can't find anybody. I'm going to have to come. I'm going to have to come with my own arm. I'm going to have to come with my own strength. I'm going to have to actually come and do this. And so we see then in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, um, and this is the one that I think a lot of people would think of, son of man, and actually reference. Um, Daniel is saying, I saw in a night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So we get all of those portraits, those ones of Moses, of David, of Abraham. We get that one who's actually going to live like a true human, one who's actually going to bring that blessing to the nations, one who's actually going to live and rule like a king. And then we see in the Gospels that Jesus actually breaks in and he actually uses this phrase for himself. He's like, I am the son of man. Right. You know the portrait. You know the one who is the serpent crusher. You know the one who is the deliverer, the king, the righteous one, the only one who can ever actually take down the spiritual evil. I'm here now to do something about all this. Do we, do we get that? Like, do we understand that that is actually what he's come to do? It's not just to save me from my sins. He's here to actually destroy something, to actually bring me into, not like, I don't want to look to the past and I remember this and like, I wish that I could go back to the garden specifically, like, that'd be awesome. But like, he's like, I've got a greater thing in store. I want you to look forward. I've got a heavenly city, Jerusalem. And if you actually want to know about it, it sounds just like the garden, but better. There's more gemstones. There's more rivers. There's more beauty. There's actually a city there. There's all types of stuff going on. 
that's what I want you to look forward to. And not just look forward to, but realize that when in Revelation actually says, and, and, uh, and this, the angel took me up on a mountain to show me the wife, the bride of the lamb. Not only are you looking forward to one day being a part of that, you are that. You are the wife, the bride of the lamb. You are the church. He's actually revealing that in you, that you are those things. You are the city of God. You are that garden of creation. You are all of those things. And that's where the spirit of God actually flows out. And so we realize that when Jesus comes and actually says to the, to the Pharisees, hey, you brood of vipers, you were just like your father, the devil. Think of that for a second. Like with the whole thought, like tracking with what I just showed you from the Old Testament, when he says, you brood of vipers, what does that mean to them? They know. They know that they are just like, it's the animating force of darkness behind what they're doing. And that's what he's calling them out for. You're the seed of the, of the serpent. You're not living in the way that humanity was designed to live. He's light in the darkness. He, he actually is the arm of the Lord who comes to seek and to save. Just like Isaiah said, like, I've looked. I can't find it. I have to come. I have to be the arm of the Lord. I actually have to put on righteousness like a breastplate and salvation as a crown. And he takes down the serpent and, dark, and the darkness that has eroded and corroded his creation. And he actually removes the chaos and destruction and gives the keys of the kingdom to his people, his body, his church, to continue what he started. And we still see it. We still see that. But what we have to realize is that we actually have the power. He says, I have given you all authority and all power in heaven and on earth to go out and do these things. So we don't have to go, hey, God, would you have this great move? No, when the spirit moves, we move. When we move, the spirit moves. It's one and the same. We get that, right? That changes how we live. That we actually are one in Christ. So what he actually did as the Son of Man, we actually enter into, and we continue every day to crush the head of the serpent. When lust comes, when unforgiveness is a potential, when all of these things are all, like, we're jo- our job, our way of living, is actually to bring righteousness, peace, and joy. We actually live just like the one. So when the Lord actually looks out and goes, I don't just have one. I have an army of people who are the arm of the Lord, who do my will, who live righteously, who actually live in the way that I've called them to live. And that is the reality that we're supposed to understand when Jesus is saying, who do they say the Son of Man is? Hmm. You know. (laughs) You know who it is. So just to sort of tie that portion together, if you go to 17, at the very beginning, it actually says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And after six days, Jesus, okay? So after six days. Tell me what happened on the sixth day of creation. What was made on the sixth day? Humans, okay, right? So on the sixth day, Jesus goes up and... He's transfigured. He reveals the final and true Adam on the sixth day. <laughs> we shouldn't miss those type of things. They're, they're, just, they're just good. Um, okay, so Stephen talked about the idea of seed of serpent and seed of a woman. Um, obviously, it would be way more convenient if the seed of the serpent was truly like serpent people running around, right? It would be a lot easier to pick out who we're supposed to be you know, associating with and who we're not. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, and so you have to, you know, you have to measure in a different way, right? And so here you go, Genesis 4, you get to see the seed of the serpent living out in Cain. And so if we go to Genesis 4, I want to just sort of look at a couple of things. And one of those I really want to think about, which is um, when we read genealogies, at least in the Bible, we often think of them just as lists, but there's so much more. There's so much more there that they're packing in. So I just want to read to you Cain's genealogy, and then we want to stop and think about it for a minute, okay? So Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born, born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehuel, yeah, I'm bad at that one, and he fathered Meshuel, and Meshuel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives, the name of which was Ada, and the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, Jubal, and he was the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. Zillabor Tubal-Cain, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. 
Now, if we just stop there, at the beginning, we have Cain. At the end, we have Lamech, right? And so if you look at the progression of that line, you notice that by the end, not only is he start talking about how he's a murderer, but now he's also taken up polygamy. And so we've progressed sin to continually larger and larger levels, right? Um, and, you know, if you go to the, you know, Kings or Chronicles, you'll notice that it's constant, you know, there'll be said something along the lines of like, and he ruled like his father, or he didn't rule like his father, right? And it's a statement about, do you or do you not live into the same line? And so when we get here abounding, Cain and Lamech, we've now bounded the problem, right? All these people are living in progressively greater and greater amounts of sin. Now, this is unfortunate because if you read through all the things that they're developing, city, uh-oh, instruments, music, uh-oh, metalworking, that's really bad. I'm a metal, metallurgist, so <laughs> that's unfortunate, right? Um, the tent, uh, tabernacle, right? So we have to stop and go, okay, well, what are we going to do with those things? And this is, again, one of those themes that's developing through the Bible, which is that God doesn't let the seed of the serpent claim creation, but instead he keeps reclaiming it. So if someone does something, he doesn't just go, yeah, that's lost. He's going, no, I'm going to get it. I'm taking it back. So if you go forward just to Genesis 5 and you read through the genealogies and make it through his second genealogy, which is two in a row is just brutal, right? Um, you notice the fact that, the, that Cain's first son is Enoch. Now you get to Enoch in the second one under the other one, and he is taken because he walks with God. You get to Lamech, and instead of taking vengeance 77 times, he lives 777 years. Eh, maybe, maybe not. Okay. Okay. So what about Exodus 31? We're talking about Bezalel, right? He's the craftsman and metal worker, and he's working on metal for the tabernacle. So we don't leave these, these industries, these other things that the seed of the serpent have taken. We don't leave them and go, I guess we lost them. No, God's like, we're taking them back. We're reclaiming them. So we get that one, right? Okay, so then, which again, makes me feel really good because I'm a metallurgist. So it's good to know, like, the first one who's got the spirit inside of him is a metallurgist. <laughs> feel pretty good about that. Woo. I totally made that decision based off of that, right, guys? But the first people were gardeners. So oh. Just putting that out there. <laughs> he has to one-up me. <laughs> All right, and then if you go to Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambour tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipes. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So again, we have, if you hadn't already picked up it in other places, we've reclaimed music, right? So we haven't let it go We've reclaimed it. We're continually to restore creation and not just laying, well, we lost that part. It's, it's gone. Got to draw a line. And just to continue to build on it, Enoch, or, you know, um, Cain, he builds the first city. Well, you go to Revelation 21, and what do you see? A city, right? So every single one of these things. Oh, and final, final one is, is the tabernacle, right? Which is, so the, the guy is building tents, and it's the same word. <laughs> It's used for God's dwelling place. So every single one of these things that we could draw a line and say, it's lost, God's like, nope, it's not. I'm taking every one of them back, okay? And you can stop right there and just start to ask in your life, where have I drawn a line and said, it's lost. It can't be reclaimed. And God says, yeah, it can. It can be redeemed. Um, you know, you, you hear these things where it's like, oh, well, you shouldn't use that symbol, that symbol's bad. That symbol's, you know, that's lost because, you know, so-and-so uses that symbol. Well, let's reclaim it. Don't use that word. We've lost that word. The rainbow. We can't lose the rainbow anymore. We've lost the rainbow. No, yes, we can. We can use it. We can reclaim it. We are reclaiming creation because Christ lives in us, right? 
-hmm. And so we reclaim creation, we don't leave it behind. So that's a second. So we've got Son of Man, and we've got reclaiming creation. Both these things are important. We want to continue to build to what we're trying to understand about Matthew 16. So if you've been reading through Matthew 16 with us, you've noticed that in chapter 15, Jesus goes to uh, the region of Tyre and Sidon. Um, he meets a woman. He heals her child. Uh, he comes back. We've got 16. Then on 17, he goes up on a high mountain. Well, you know, if you stop for a second and think about this, that sounds a lot like another biblical character. Who is it that goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, meets a woman, heals a child, comes back, does some stuff, and then meets God on a high mountain? Elijah, right? Oh, interesting. We should be thinking parallels. What was that thing in the middle that he did? Um, but then before we do that, let's think about this, which is if we distill that idea down more, what is the character who is born in, a ho in his homeland, leaves his homeland, meets a woman, comes back to his homeland, does some stuff, then goes up on a high mountain? Moses, Moses right? So we should be thinking, first off, the parallels between Moses and Elijah are just amazing. But now we're being invited to think of the parallels between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, okay? And the thing we want to understand, because it's the, the, the where we are right now, is 16, okay? So we're in 16, and we're looking at the fact that we now have this thing that fits in the spot where Elijah does what? what is, so Elijah comes back from Tyre and Sidon, and before he goes up on the high mountain, what does he do? Blank looks. Uh oh. After he, you know, so after he brings, right, he brings the widows. Um, he comes back into Israel, and he faces off against Baal. Right. So he goes up on a mountain, and he has a showdown with Baal. And so we should stop and start to think about that. What is this? How are we supposed to look at that parallel in light of what Jesus is doing right now? So let's understand a little bit more about what's going on with. Elijah and his battle with Baal. So this Baal, Baal means Lord, but and so you can have like Baal so-and-so, Baal so-and-so, and it just means, you know, different gods. But the, the top one is Baal, and you guys might be familiar with his, um, his insulting name, Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies, but that's a Jewish insult on a name. In the cultures that actually worshipped them, it's not an insult because it's Beelzebul, and that is Lord of the Heavens. And he's known as the one who's the cloud rider, and so therefore he has control over the weather. And so when Elijah says, it's not going to rain, what's he doing? He's walking right into what should be Baal's territory and saying, uh-uh, this is his authority? It's not. It's God's authority. We are claiming that. It's not his, it's ours. And so here we get this battle, right? And then it's, it's shown in this final sort of showdown that God is the true authority and not Baal. So if we go back then and look at the parallel with, Ma uh, with Moses, Moses does something really similar, right? Which is the, the ten plagues are a battle with the Egyptian gods. Right? I mean, it, you guys have probably heard this idea, which is the first plague turns the water to blood. Well, Osiris has, Nile was his bloodstream, and Happy was the spirit of the Nile. So to turn the Nile, this thing that's supposed to be associated with the gods, to blood, is to automatically start attacking the gods. And I won't go through every single one. The sixth one is boils, Serapsis, and Imhotep are the gods of healing, and they can't heal them. The ninth plague is darkness. Amun-Re and Horus are the gods of the sun. God continues to demonstrate he's the true authority and not these. And then finally, if you just go to Exodus 12, 12, God's talking and he says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So now we've gotten this context, which is what we should be looking at in this portion of 16 is God, Jesus, putting in place something supernatural, right? That we're facing off against these things and that that's what we should be thinking about when we come into this section. Okay, we've got one final detail that we need to look at. 
geography. You'll notice that it says he comes in this region of Caesarea Philippi. Um, can you give me that second slide? I forgot to use the first one. Oh, well. Oops. Oh. I only had two, and I've already the missed first one of them. One. Yeah, that's the first one. Go to the second one. All right. So you'll notice that um, you know, the large body of water here that you can see is the Sea of Galilee. Um, and he first goes to the left, and he goes up way up there to Tyre and Sidon area. Then he comes back down. Then he goes way up here to Caesarea Philippi. Now, he gets way up there, and then he makes a statement in, 20, in, in verse 21 of 16. It's time to head back to Jerusalem. Now, if you stop and just think about that, Jesus went and got way up there and then says, now it's time to go to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is way south of all of this picture. What's he trying to do? So I've got a couple thoughts on this. One, he's trying to get his steps in. <laughs> Two, he's trying to reach peak health before the crucifixion. So, or, you know, he could get, he's trying to get CrossFit. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> no? Okay. Um, he heard about a little, good little, great little food place that he was trying to go to. Um, or he heard the fact that this is, Caesarea Philippi is right at the bottom of a mountain that gets snow all the time. And so he and the, you know, and the disciples cool are going to do some skiing. Yeah, cool down. Cool down, you know, chill for a little bit. No, none of those? None of those. Okay, all right. Um, there must be something else going on? Something else. Okay. So before, before we start to think about that too much, we want to think about this, which is how does the Bible use geography? So let's, let's look, look at one, okay, right? So Egypt, we meet Egypt. The first time we meet him is, uh, meet the mention of Egypt is in Genesis 10. It's the table of the 70 nations. Next time we meet it is Genesis 12. Now here, this is when Abram decides to go to Egypt, right? Because of the famine. So he goes to famine, and he goes to Egypt. Bad things happen. God saves them through plagues. Interesting, right? Interesting. So the next time that a people go to Egypt, you're like, especially because they're going because of a famine, you're like, oh no, no, don't do it, don't do it. And sure enough, bad things happen and God saves them through plagues. Interesting. So let's try another, try the second one together. All right, what can you tell me about Joppa? Joppa, Joppa, Joppa. Jonah. Jonah, right? Yeah, but there's a second mention. So, okay, so Jonah, right, he's called to the Gentiles, and he flees, right? He flees to Joppa, so then he can get on a ship. So that's where he goes. He goes to Joppa so he can flee. But there's a second, at least, mention of Joppa, that there's a, a character that goes there. Any thoughts on who that might be? Peter, right? Yeah. And so he's in Joppa when he gets called to the Gentiles. But he doesn't flee. He does the opposite. Right? He, re he inverts the story. Now, you can actually go to Matthew 16, and you can get even another level of detail to this, right? Which is, Jesus calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. What does that mean? It means Simon, son of Jonah. So Simon, son of Jonah, goes to Joppa and inverts the story of Jonah. <laughs> uh, You've you got to look at that and just go like, wow, that's amazing. Like, we can't make this stuff up, right? You know, this is, this is real. So this is how we should be understanding when we're reading the Bible, the way geography works. If we're mentioning things, it's not just for like trivial details. So if, Peter, or, uh, if Matthew tells you that they go to the region of Caesarea Philippi, we should stop and go, wait a second, Caesarea Philippi, what is going on here and how should that matter? So before we dive into the biblical understanding of how this works, we're going to notice a couple other details, which is that Caesarea Philippi is at the bottom of a mountain called Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon, we do hear about in the Old Testament. But if you go and read extra biblical details to understand these type of things, Josephus, famous historian, writing in the time of Jesus, describing details, and he talks about this area of Caesarea Philippi. And he says, there's, at the top of a, there, um, Caesarea, there's a mountain up above, raised to an immense height, and at its bottom... There's a dark cave and opens it to itself. And within there, there's a horrible precipice that descends abruptly to an immeasurable depth. It contains a huge amount of water, which never goes anywhere. And when anybody lets anything down to measure how far down the earth is beneath the water, no length of cord is sufficient to reach it. Hmm. So this 
this cave and water becomes associated and in people in this culture are calling it basically the gates of hell. So when Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail, and we, you know, he's talking here in, in 16, shall not prevail against it, it would be like me talking to you and saying, gateway to the west. Where we stand today, I can say that, and you all sort of have some idea of what I'm talking about, right? St. Louis. And you might even have the arch pop into your mind when I say that. So in the same way, when Jesus says, gates of hell, something instantly pops to their mind, right? They're not going, just some abstract idea. They're going, oh, you know, yeah, this pit that is associated with, with death and is associated with things actually in that culture, there are, you know, this whole thought of process around what's going on there. But again, we don't want to leave it in just extra biblical details. We want to we dive into the biblical details, right? So let's go to Deuteronomy 3. <coughs> And we go here and we say, Then we turned and went up the way of Bish- to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edre. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and his people and his land into your hands. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave, us, gave into our hands Og, also the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until there was no survivor left. And then if we go to verses 8 and 9. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of of the Amorites who were between the Jordan, the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Sinir. So we get this placement, which is they just go in, it's outside of the promised land, and they they have a battle. Now that battle is in Bashan, and Bashan has at one part of it Mount Hermon. So we're getting this context that there is this, this battle. If you're going into Bashan, you might face a battle, right? So this is our anchor of what we might be noticing here. Um, and so we're starting to think, okay, well, where, where do we go with this? Uh, and so we go to places like Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sign to, sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel has his own possession. For I know the, the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the ends of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from the storehouses. He it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and a beast, who in midst of e- in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. So again, we're seeing this reminder of the conflict that's there. Um, and then we go finally to Psalm 68. O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mountain that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. So that's 15 and 16. And then if you go to 22, the Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring back from the depths of the sea. So we have a statement on the one side that this mountain, because Bashan is an area, but it's, it's starting to uh, conflate or associate Mount Hermon with just generally the geography of Bashan. Mount Hermon and and Bashan become intertwined, right? Okay? And so we're saying here is is that this area is in conflict and jealous. Well, Mount Hermon is like 9,200 feet. And the the mountain it's it's jealous of is Mount Zion, which is nothing more than a big hill, basically. So it's not because it's taller. It's because of what God is doing in Mount Zion and not in Mount Hermon, right? So we understand that. And then we get to 22, and God says, I'm going to bring it back, right? I'm bringing it back. I'm not going to leave it stand in conflict. I'm bringing it back. So then, now, now we go back, and we stand in the base of Mount Hermon, and Jesus says, on this rock, I build my church. He's gone into the homeland of 
supernatural beings who stand opposed. That's what we're seeing. That's what is being laid out as what Matthew's communicating to us in the way he's laying it out. So he's saying here, look, it's not something that I'm leaving to be left alone. I'm reclaiming it to the point where I'm building my church on this thing, right? I'm not leaving it here. It's mine. It's part of my creation and I take it back. And to just go further, 17, he goes up on the same mountain and he's transfigured, making the statement another level clearer. It's mine. I'm not leaving it alone. Does that make sense, guys? Mm-hmm. So we built this, sto- this, this level of detail to understand that we're, we're, we're going in and we're not leaving Mount Hermon or any other part of creation untouched. It's all reclaimed for God. And that's what's being communicated here when we say this. It's not just, not that that's not a big deal, but that Peter's the rock, right? There's way more that's going on here than that. So, like, do you realize that in what we've just laid out, we didn't just uh, teach Matthew 16 specifically, we actually taught you how to read the Bible? Did you catch that? Like, we actually taught you these are the things, of, this is what you should look for when you're reading. This is, this, is what it, this is what, when you read a passage and you just scroll over it, um, and it's like, well, you know, I don't know. I know the Son of Man. It gets used a lot. It's pretty, pretty good words. I like the Son of Man. It's Jesus. But what's going on there? You know, what is this th- of, of this specific location that's actually taking place? Like, we just gave you all of these thoughts um, of what this looks like in your own time when, you are, when you're going to be reading. Like, realize, so uh, if you're on the internet, everybody know what the internet is? We all know that, right? Okay, so like if you click on, a, on a, what's called a hyperlink, usually it's like blue or something, uh, you click on that thing and a bloop takes you to another page, right? Like another website or something on the same website or something like that. That's what the Bible is filled with. We just don't get to click on them. Uh, we just get to be really attentive readers, and we're noticing, and we're hearing, and we're, we're meditating on this. And so whenever these words come up, it's like, hyperlink, where does that take me? That takes me to Daniel, that takes me to Ezekiel, that takes me to Genesis 3, that takes me back to Moses, that takes me back to, like, does that make sense? Like, that is how we read. Like, that is how we pay attention to these things. So, like, whenever it starts talking about mountains, it's like, whoop, mountains. Do we know something about mountains in the Bible? Yes, there's lots about mountains in the Bible. It's not just a mountain. Like, there's more, like, these, these biblical writers, they didn't have a, a, a computer, and they can just, like, type and type and type. Nope, backspace, backspace, backspace. No, they, like, they condensed so many words. Uh, they made every single word important. So when there is a word, it is important. In your Bible, every word, every single one is important and it is keying into other things. And so when we read stuff, it's like, well, I don't know. I just didn't get stuff out of it today. It's the word of God. Every single word is important. It depends on how much you actually want to take the time to actually dive in. So that's when when Jesus gets to the end and he says, uh, and then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For, uh, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man uh, be given in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will actually not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We actually see that. We actually see Jesus coming in his kingdom, both in his death and his ascension. So some of those people actually got to see that take place. That whenever we see in Daniel that there's one riding on the clouds, oh, when Jesus goes in the clouds... That is exactly the Son of Man going up to take his place in his, in his heavenly kingdom um, to actually go sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty to actually rule and reign. And that's actually what's, t- like, that already happened. We're not waiting for Jesus to rule and reign. He's doing it through his people, which is the same thing, hyperlink, Genesis 1. Go have dominion. Go be fruitful and multiply. Go do all of these things. Bring the blessing of Eden to all of creation. Be the son of man. So just like, take up your cross. You know those things that look desirable? It's not always fun to choose the other thing. It's not always like, this is what I want to do. Sometimes it actually just takes obeying the will of God, actually having the fear of the Lord, and actually walking in his way, in his wisdom, not the wisdom of the world. Does that make sense? Did you want to open up for questions? Yeah. 
So we covered a lot. I, just wanna, I, I always like to open up for questions because that's my favorite part, honestly. So um, any questions, concerns, clarifications you'd like to dive in before we, we close up? No? Yes, maybe? Mm -hmm. All right, Stephen? All right. A couple more verses I want to hit on real fast. Hopefully I realize the time. Uh, so uh, Colossians uh, 1, 15, it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So both places, everything was created by him. Um, uh, visible and invisible. So the things that we actually tangibly interact with and the spiritual realm, those things are all his. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And you move over to uh, Colossians 2, and it says, see, that, see, see to it that no one takes you captive, because you actually have already been made alive in Christ. We're not waiting for that to take place. We actually, like, whether we feel it or whether we don't, there is a truth. And what your feelings are and what your circumstances are doesn't matter. You have to align. Like, they are lies sometimes because it has already taken place. You are already seated in heavenly places. You are already made one with him. You are already given his mind. You are already united as his body. So when you don't feel it, when it doesn't look like it, it doesn't matter. Are you going to believe the truth and align yourself with that and anchor yourself there? Or will you let the, the waves of the seas toss, right? Which one? Are, do you want to, do you want to uh, live by sight or live by faith? Do you want to actually uh, take of things that you desire or actually live as the seed of the woman? Which one are you actually going to be a participant in? And so uh, don't let anybody take you uh, captive by philosophy and empty the seed according to the human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to, the, and, uh, not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. In him all who were circumcised with circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in the baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with the legal demands that he has set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This happened. This happened. That's a past tense. Happened. Right? It happened. It has already taken place. There will come a fulfillment of the reality in its fullest sense one day. But we can actually live into it now because we actually know the reality. That even if the things that actually are taking place around us don't line up, one day it will. And in the meantime, we actually have the right and we have the authority to actually claim those things and walk into the reality that Jesus has already done. And so when we actually see that uh, uh, in Ephesians uh, 3, 10, uh, it says, the manifold wisdom of God is actually laid out through the church to the spiritual realm. The manifold wisdom of God is actually outplayed through the body of Christ to the spirit. Like, we are actually, like, living in the reality that he has already done, and we're speaking to the spiritual realm. No, I'm not taking of the fruit of the tree. No, I'm not, I'm not going to do that this time. I'm not going to align my life with your ways. I'm not going to be the seed of the serpent. I'm actually going to walk unified with Christ in him always. That's my goal. That's my right. I have, this, I have the spirit of God who actually raised him from the dead. I'm no longer dead. I've been taken out of the realm of darkness into the realm of light, right? Like we get this. This is the reality. 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 This is the reality that we have as believers that we can actually live in that. Right now is the reality. Do we get that? So when Jesus says, or when, when Paul says, put on, the, put on the breastplate of righteousness, breastplate of righteousness, where do I get that from? Jesus. We know that from 
he looks, he doesn't see a single person, so he's like, I'm going to take my own arm, I'm going to do this, what am I going to do? I'm actually going to come and I'm going to put the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, Isaiah, so Paul is actually going, this is what you actually get to put on. You get to actually put on the reality that Jesus is actually him. He's the one who actually came to do these things out of darkness into light. So put this on, go out and do this. You have all authority to go do these things, bind them, loose the freedom of, of reality into these people. This is what Matthew 16 is getting at. Don't let people deceive you with, with foolish thinking. Colossians 2, just read that. What was the beginning? The Pharisees. Don't let them fool you. Don't let them fool you with, with crafty speech. Crafty speech. That reminds me of something. Right? No. The reality that we've actually been bought We've actually been out, uh, taken out of darkness into the realm of light. This is the truth. I don't care what you feel like. I don't care what the reality looks like around you. The truth is, you have been bought. I do care what you feel like. I do care what it is around you. But you understand what I'm saying, that the reality is, you've actually been bought out of darkness into light. And whatever it looks like, you get the choice of will you... Will you actually identify with Christ, united with him, and live like him? Let me close in prayer. Father, I just thank you for your grace that, that this is the truth, this is the reality that you've actually con- you have conquered, you have already done this. That you have actually done something that has not just uh, saved us from sin, but actually brought us into a new reality that has actually paid the price for us to actually walk unified with you. That you've actually given yourself so we can have your spirit, so we can actually be one and united with you. And I ask that you would awaken that in us to the reality that what we actually have to who we actually are in you. And that you would stir it up in our hearts that we would just be people who who don't just like take the things of the world. Don't, aren't, we aren't deceived by the things around us, whether there's riots, whether there's chaos, whether there's darkness going on all around us, that we would know what is actually at play underneath those things. And we would actually take the time and we would actually pray into those things, that we would bind the spirits of darkness, that we would actually go in and actually live and actually bring those rivers of life. And we would lose your freedom, your restoration, your grace your righteousness and peace into creation, that we would actually be members with you, that we would actually participate with you, that we would be animated by your spirit, and that we would actually be bringing that redemption that you actually paid for, the redemption that you actually did, the redemption that actually you began. And we would walk in that. Yes, God, I just ask that you would just continue to pour out your spirit to, to enliven us. We have your spirit, but I ask that you would just awaken it in us, that you would awaken us to actually participate with you, with your spirit, that you would actually let us see the things that you've already done for us. And that we would outwork these things, that we would actually live and move and have our being in your spirit, in you, by you, with you, for you. God, I thank you for your grace. Open our eyes. Open our ears to the things that you have for us. In Jesus' name.